So, what is it that you love about being black? That's a great question, Nanny Keenan. I love being black because I'm different from everybody else. And the second reason, because black people can do anything they set their minds to. What I like about being black is just freaking amazing. We we are amazing. Every day is a good day for breathing. My but, favorite part about being black is uh, the originality. Love being black because I can put my hair into different shapes and sizes, and nobody can ever tell me how my hair can be. I do like the food. When people say black girl magic, that's for real. That ain't just because because we just want to say that. It's real. We magic. We we are so unique in everything that we know. Go ahead, say it. Please say it. Please say black. Please say, Please stay black. Please stay black. Please stay black. Please stay black. Because I always was black. <laughs> <laughs>《Black Listeners》，I know it's been a long time. Your girl been working, but I'm so excited to give you all the gift of Dr. Felicia Bell, an esteemed historian who I have spoken to for this episode. But this episode was particularly cultivated with the Independence Holiday in mind. I spoke with Dr. Felicia Bell, an esteemed historian who's worked at several, several of our most tremendous institutions here in the United States. Her research focused on enslaved labor in the United States. And she is a brainchild who really can help us understand the tumultuous tensions that exist between the pursuit of liberty and freedom for all and the predictability of supremacy culture and the violence of anti-Blackness. And so this is an episode that can mean so much to our listeners. If you are a Black person, it will help you understand why a posture of demand is so necessary. And if you're someone who's listening who may not identify as being Black, it will serve as a reminder of how far we have yet to go in this country with reconciling our truth with reality. This year, it shouldn't be surprising that as we walk into the day that many people here in the United States celebrate as an Independence Day holiday, that there are a variety of people in this country from various social identities and locations who are struggling with this notion of independence in a country that has currently worked hard to make sure that personal rights and liberties are given to so few people. And so today's episode is really a benchmark that serves as a reminder of the history of these United States. It reminds us of the progress that people have made, in particular, Black citizens in this country, but also a reminder of all the places we have yet to go. And so I am honored that Dr. Felicia Bell, an esteemed historian, has joined me for this episode. And, and maybe they even give us some roadmaps about how do we move forward in reconciling our past with our tremendous potential. See you on the other side of the episode. Y'all, I am so excited. I want all the Please Say Black listeners to open your hearts and your mind. We have a true academic superstar. I Okay, so let me just say this. We are on the call with Dr. Felicia A. Bell, and I have got to tell you all how excited I am. Now, Jay-Z, 
the insane philosopher talks about how numbers don't lie, but resumes don't lie either. So before we get into today's conversation, I have to let y'all know everything. Well, I can't even let you know all the stuff that Dr. Bill has done, but a couple of the highlights. She is currently the senior advisor to the Macmillan Director at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. That is not to be confused with the museum the Barack Obama created <laughs> that is entitled the African American History Museum. She was formerly the director of Troy University's Rosa Parks Museum. I mean, Felicia, Dr. Felicia Bell has even testified before the United States Congress about the recognition of enslaved labor in creating the U.S. Capitol and much of our country's infrastructure. So she has served on the National Committee's Planning Committee, Environmental Impact Statement for the National Museum of African American History and Culture. I can't even say all the fancy stuff that Dr. Bell has done. <laughs> So, Dr. Bell, do you want to tell the people who you are? I mean, I cited a oh. lot. And I didn't even cite your whole resume. I really didn't. I just gave some of the highlights. Okay. <laughs> well, How would you introduce yourselves to our wow. Black listeners? No, I, I thank you so much for being so generous and, and uh, inviting me to be here. And I'm um, just so happy to be here. It's always an honor to be in the presence of sisters. So thank you for inviting yes. me. And um, I think you did a fine job. And, and <laughs> in uh, introducing me and that's so gracious of you and and just happy to be here so um well, i am yeah. humbled i am humbled you know we, we're standing amongst legends every day and we stand on the shoulders of legends right so at the time of the recording i just want the listeners to know that dr bill and i it's black history month you know there's a lot of amazing moments happening there's a lot of shenanigans happening but that is the nature of affinity months I'm going to spend a lot of this podcast oohing and on because of the prolific nature of the work you do, Dr. Bell. But there's like three little things that I want to deposit to you. And then I just want you to reflect, respond however you want to. So the first thing I want to say, y'all, is I found out about Dr. Bell's research when I was actually creating some content around one of the things I've been trying to do and I seek to do often is really quantify uh, the labor that enslaved folks have done across the Americas, but especially the United States. And so Dr. Bell has, I mean, if you go to the whitehouse.gov website, Dr. Bell is there and there, the, the data that you provided about the names and the actual construction of the U.S. Capitol and other so historical sites is pretty prolific. So that's the first thing I want to name that, like, that's how I found your work is in that mm -hmm. quest. Mm -hmm. And then two Two other things I want to say is that, you know, it's embarrassing, but I, it's my, it's part of my journey. And it's funny because I think most people wouldn't know this, especially considering like how like pro-Black I am, however we're defining that. But at one point in time in my life, I did not believe in reparations. You know, it seems so ludicrous now, right? But at one point I was like, yeah, like when I say it, it like makes me want to like, you know, like ugh, I cringe inside. But I was like, yeah, what are you talking about? That was so long ago, whatever. And um, and part of what drove that, besides like the internalized anti-Blackness I, I have had, is the lack of information. I didn't know, right? I didn't, like, 
Despite the critique of critical race theorist haters that we're living with right now, nobody was in primary school giving me all these facts about who did what. And so it wasn't until I got older and got to undergrad that I started doing research. And I was like, oh my gosh, wow. Like our ancestors really like Angela oh gosh, I can't think of that sister's name, but built this shit for free. That's a real, that's a real thing. And once I started to learn more, I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah. Like there's a debt to be paid. And then the third thing that I'm going to share and turn the mic over to you, and I think I've shared this with you privately before, is that here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, we have this amazing historical rotunda um, that was created in, insert, long, long time ago, but it was built by enslaved folks. And I went on a tour that rotunda a few years back with um, some youth. It was a like a youth mentorship program. And the tour guide was amazing. They knew so many great things. They know how, like we get to the top of the rotunda and it's this multifaceted, it has, it's a glass like dome and it has so many amazing colors and the sun reflects and it's just beautiful. And not one time the, the tour guide name who built it. And that stuck with me because most of the kids in that mentorship group were black and brown. And I thought to myself, what a disservice because how powerful would it have been for them to hear people like you built something like this that is still standing today. And that is something that black kids need to access, right? So those are like some quick downloads and I would love to hear your thoughts and okay, that's it. It's all you now. It's all, it's you, sis. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Well, I mean, I appreciate your reflections and uh, on your on your travels to that historic site and in just how you were able to as a visitor to think critically about who built this place. And I think it's important for us to think about um, what we call, you know, cultural landscapes and, and the notion that, you know, somewhere along the line, uh, people lived in, worked at, built places all around us, even battlefields or plantations public roads, churches, universities, houses of legislature. So I think if we just think a little bit deeper, we'll come to see that most of early America was built by enslaved people. And so I guess I'll just start with, with um, what, what led me to this um, research was when I started working as director of education, or even before that, when I interviewed for the job, uh, director of education at the U.S. Capitol Historical Society. And at the time, my supervisor, Dr. Don Kennan, he took me on a tour of the Capitol. And we were walking all around, and this was my first time I'm visiting the Capitol and I'm fresh out of grad school with my master's in historic preservation. So, you know, my, my antennas are up on this building and, and how it got here. And so I'm looking in awe at the beauty of, of the building inside and out and just the magnificence of it. And, and um, you know, I just immediately started thinking about who built it. And had I not known better, I would not have known because there was no um, indication in any kind of memorial or plaque or any kind of uh, message from a, or a tour guide, you know, 
about who built it. And so, so that is when I knew that I wanted to explore that as a research topic. And at the time I knew that I wanted to continue my education and pursue a PhD. And so I knew that I wanted to pursue that as a dissertation topic. And so that is what I did eventually when I, uh, ended up pursuing that at Howard University in, in Washington, D.C. Who's ready for some Black history? This is your Black History Moment. But I think an important question to consider, and this is actually one of our, you know, standard segments, which is, Dr. Bell, you are Black history. And so I've got to ask, what Black history have you manifested lately? You know? Wow. Well, you know, um, when when I do my work, I just try to, you know, be earnest in Um, what I do and take it seriously that, you know, as an historian, we want to be as accurate as possible, as you know, in, in, in telling the the history and, and how we share that. And so that means being inclusive and telling the whole story. And so I think the best way to exemplify being Black history is by doing that, by honoring our ancestors, by telling their whole story, letting their voices speak, you know, um, entering them in to into what what the story is and so I think that uh the way to do that is just uh just being honest and and doing your work in earnest and being inclusive and always thinking about them and doing them justice you know giving them a voice when they didn't have that before so I think that's how I'm being black history is just you know honoring them keeping that legacy going when you were at uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but even you being at the U.S. Capitol telling the story, saying, showing the receipts, right? We live in this culture where it's all about the receipts, you know, now it's a little creepy, right? (laughs) Right? People like, yes, you did say that! Screenshot, right? (laughs) But we're not talking about screenshots, y'all. We're talking about documentation. And so, so then, you know, just getting into the research and, and plowing through records come to find that basically without the work of uh, enslaved craftsmen and and free Black craftsmen, the capital would not have been completed um, when it when it was due to be completed in 1800, according to the U.S. Constitution. And so um, they were an essential and vital workforce. And and just the mechanics of it all and and how uh, the uh, legislative branch and the executive branch worked together to create the system of labor where enslaved people, enslaved craftsmen were uh, actively recruited, if you will, by uh, their owners to be hired out to the capital. And so there was a system put in place where they were hired out, um, which was a common practice at that time. And then keeping in mind that these 
these folks who are orchestrating all of this, President George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and, and others were owners of enslaved people themselves. So uh, they had they had an interest, you know, <laughs> a keen interest in this, especially Washington, who wanted to develop this national permanent seat of government, national capital on the Potomac near his home and where other enslavers, owners of enslaved people lived and, 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 and had plantations nearby and where very active slave trading company was right there in Alexandria, Virginia, right across the river from where the capital would be built. So they had a vested interest in this enterprise. And so they set up a system of hiring out labor where owners would be paid $5 per month per enslaved person. And so in the National Archives... (laughs) I need us to stop. Okay. And I feel like it's like one of those play that back moments. Okay. Because I think people can miss it. What you just said. Mm. I'm going to mm-hmm. name one more time. Who got paid? So this system that was put in place called hiring out, which was which would have been familiar to them as as owners of enslaved people because as enslavers, because this was used throughout the Chesapeake region, you know, um, where, you know, one person could hire out their enslaved person to someone else temporarily for a fee. And then in, in the course of of being hired out, an enslaved person could endure physical abuse, sexual abuse, because the hirer is renting you, so to speak. And so, you know, it's like, if you will, just think about if you, let's say you own a house in a neighborhood and your house next door is being rented and the folks who are renting it, they trash the yard, they, you know, do all kinds of things. And so what ends up happening is your property value in your house goes down. Right. And so people who don't own things don't necessarily tend to treat them well all the time. And so that is kind of what happened in in situation with with hiring out sometimes, you know, the hirer did not treat the uh, the enslaved person well in when they were in their care. As, as an owner who had invested in purchasing that person in the first place would have. So and that, also that just, happened. And just to be clear, so it wasn't yes. like enslaved folks left the work site with that day's worth of rages or... No, so the way, yeah, so that's a great question. So the way that it worked, you know, is that the owners would send, you know, maybe they would send a note saying, you know, uh, I'm sending this person to labor doing whatever for a certain amount of time, or the commissioners who were, who were, there were three commissioners who were assigned to this, oversee this project, this building project. And so they would, send a note saying this is what you're owed in wage in 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 you know wages if you will for uh, the labor of this person for x amount of days and so the money would be paid to the owner of the enslaved person and then at that owner's discretion they could then give some or all of the money to the enslaved person or none well and that's what i'm about to say it wasn't like enslaved folks were a part of a union Right. Not at all. It wasn't no. Like they had agency where they could be like, 
hey, Master John, give me my, you know, $4. That, that no, system didn't exist. Not, not necessarily. Um, now, if you want to speak on a larger scale and take sort of like, um, let's, let's zoom out a little bit and look at hiring out in other places, for instance, in Charleston, South Carolina, where there was a larger Black enslaved population than there was white folks. So then, you know, you, you have a system in place where, well, you have hiring out in place, but then sometimes enslaved people would keep money for themselves when they would hire out. So they, you know, they, you could be hired out and then the hirer would say, here's your pay and, and give that to your owner. Well, then the enslaved person keeps it in their pocket for themselves. And then you end up seeing in newspapers advertisements where owners are saying this, I, I hired this person out and they owe me X amount of money. And if you see this, them, I'm going to prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law. You know, now what? Now, please now, return them to me or something like that. Now, yeah. houseway, how? Because yeah. first of all, I, I, I mean, I am enslaved. Mm -hmm. That's the first violation. But now I have something of value that could help me no longer be enslaved. I mean, like it blows my mind. Well, and then sometimes in, in the instance of of the Capitol, we do have evidence. There's an advertisement where um, an individual who was laboring at the Capitol ran away. So in that way, they expressed agency, right? And they, they, you know, they fled, they escaped. So anyway, so there's this, this system of, of, of hiring out this in place. And there are many documents in, in the archives that, that verify the system and, and, and the rate of pay. So, you know, I wrote an, I wrote an article that cited your work. So Dr. Bell, your dissertation was entitled The Negro Alone Works, right? The Negroes Alone Work. Yes. So, you know, that's going to be in the, the show notes if anyone wants to kind of like learn more about the research. And so you talk about the construction of the Capitol from 1790 to 1800. And one of the things that I really connected with um, the you know the White House website that talks about the 2005 report that was commissioned to you know I think about the late great John Lewis who also spoke about you know he he actually gave this really prophetic timely quote about really naming for us what it meant to to be sweating to be laying the bricks so could you kind if as much as you feel comfortable sharing, could you help our listeners kind of get a visual of what actually took place, right? Because I think sometimes when we hear about enslavement, it feels like this thing that just seems so like ludicrous that we can't imagine it. Mm. So if you could kind of paint a story of what people like Catherine Green did when they showed up at that at that site, I would really appreciate it. Sure. Um, well, in terms of the, the labor specifically, enslaved people were tasked with, you know, as brick masons and, and brick layers, digging ditches. And we also know that they were working in stone quarries in at Aquia uh, Creek in Stafford County, Virginia. There's a there's a quarry there where they where they worked and and it was very difficult labor because when you know when we look at the at the documentation where they were quarrying stone in winter months. So and if you if you live in this area and, 
in Washington, D.C. area, Northern Virginia, you know how cold it gets, right? So um, just imagine if, you know, if there is, is rain or, you know, snow that gets down in the crevices, you know, in the quarry, it's very difficult to coax that stone from the earth in, in freezing temperatures. And so those who labored in the quarries were left to labor in isolation for long periods of time. And they were working with stone just like 18 inches wide crevices. So just enough to fit their bodies. And we know from documentation that they were given whiskey and, you know, alcohol to help them so-called cope with the, the conditions, if you will, which typically, you know, enslaved people weren't given alcohol, you know, but, but in this case they were because it was such treacherous conditions. And then in the summer months you have the heat and, and those conditions. And so it, it was difficult labor and, um, there were hazards associated with it, you know, felling trees or digging ditches, you know, you can injure yourself. And so these, these, you know, there was no OSHA or anything, you know, it was not, you know, it was, it was difficult labor and, and uh, very um, rudimentary tools used. So these were the circumstances. I wanted to also kind of get you to build on something you said, you know, not just in Washington, but other places where enslaved folks might have been hired out and once given that currency, make a decision to, you know, attempt to to seek freedom, you know, or and I think that's powerful because I mean I imagine, Dr. Bell, that you have heard, or maybe you haven't, I don't know, but I've definitely heard critique that talks about or speaks to the idea that why didn't they try to fight harder? Or why didn't they try to rebel? Or why didn't they try to resist? And that always is so upsetting to me because I I think of all of the ways that enslaved folks try to fight back with the limited agency they had. So, I mean, would you, you know, like in this instance, I'm not seeing an enslaved person running away with that days of wages as a as a as a, a theft. To, the, to their enslaver, I see that as an act of resistance, right? So I wonder if you could speak more to it. Like, do you think that those things, while it might've been one person and one runaway, would you describe that as revolutionary or resistive um, action? I would, and not, I'm not saying necessarily that that happened at the Capitol, but certainly I think enslaved people, whenever opportunity presented itself to free themselves did, Um, or to resist in some way, to uh, slow down the pace of labor, to break tools, to feign illness, um, you know, to run away, even if it was running away nearby, you know, in, in some nearby woods for a few days, you know, and then and then going back because running away wasn't necessarily easy, you know, it was quite difficult. And so, you know, I think that when when opportunity presented itself, I think, you know, there was always um, that, you know, urge or or need for for resistance. I hope that Thank answered you. your question. No, you did. Thank you for naming that. Because I think whether we realize it or not in the Black community, which you could definitely be like, now look, sis, that is not my uh, scope of research or expertise. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, the things that don't get said, I think a lot 
are the there's a there's a sense of I think in some ways shame right or at least there's an intention to bring shame to manifest shame well like clearly they deserved that treatment because they didn't work to do anything not to be treated that way and Mm -hmm. that is not what I'm saying is accurate that is not accurate that's a lie because again like to your point there was all these things that were done on an everyday basis to resist the the, this peculiar institution but I think because of the lack of intentionality because of the lack of education and information to a certain extent I do think there's been some kind of internalized shame like well I mean why did we you know what I'm saying I mean I'm gonna make this metaphor and if anyone wants to like you know critique it I'm open for it but like for people who are in um you know who experience intimate partner violence a lot of the time when they leave those situations they talk about feeling embarrassed why did I stay so long or you know, why didn't I leave faster? Why didn't I do more? And so here we are hundreds of years later. And I do think that there's some sense among some Black people, not all of that, well, they should have done more. You know, we have that historical moment with Kanye, right? Which is like, there are more slaves. And, you know, we're not, you know, we're not even going to get into all that, sis. But I'm just saying, I think there's this false equivalency that in some way or form, because the slaves didn't fight hard enough, that mm. they somehow deserved the violence, mm. the anti-Blackness, all of these mm. things, you know? And that's disheartening because that's that's something that happens within the community, mm-hmm. you know? Well, I think you also, um, Kina, have to look at it like, not necessarily you, but I'm saying, you know, generally... <laughs> I think we also have to think about it like, you know, we didn't enslave ourselves, you know, so let's put some of the onus on, all the onus on those who captured, kidnapped, traded, coerced uh, us from where we were, you know, human beings living free, you know, uh, and so so this is the, all this blaming, and I, I don't know if if that's the right place for that, you know, uh, for that kind of argument here, you know, racism is not Black folks' fault, you know, so oppression is not our fault. So I think we um, we have to think about this in, in sort of a, a different way, in sort of, um, you know, turning it around, if you will, and, and uh, looking at those who enslaved us. It's not for us to try to give some kind of a value or, you know, um, accountability, you know, for, for our actions on things, so. <laughs> no, I like, I appreciate yeah. you, you know, yeah. And again, I, I want to make sure I'm not but saying But I get that. it. I know, no, I know people say yeah. that and do that. I get it. Yeah, yeah. They, do. they do. And that's not all Black people, you know? Yeah, but yeah. There's yeah. definitely, I've, 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 at this point, I've like heard it and seen it enough. Mm-hmm. And it, like I said, it's really disheartening that Black people, like after all this time, are still kind of, you know, uh, it's our version of trying to maybe even create some kind of responding to the cognitive dissonance, right? Because there are folks who feel like, you know, that again, that was so long ago or, you know, da-da-da-da. And so we're still dealing with the aftermath, even to the extent, and we don't need to spend a lot of time here, but I just want to name how fantastical it is that people still in the year of our Palestinian Jesus 2022 
want to talk about the benevolence of the enslavers, right? Because that's also a thing. Like in this world where people are, you almost can't believe it, but you know it's true, are mad about CRT theory that don't know what critical race theory is. And they're under the delusion that people are teaching second and third graders about the triumph of Harriet Tubman because that's not happening, right? But those same detractors are also people who are like, well, they were good slave owners and slavery was, you know, a good thing. And, you know, everyone was happy in that system, you know? And so we're still seeing that in real time. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, um, I, I, um, think about when when people make that argument, you know, I always think about the folks who were living back then, there were people who were anti-slavery, you know, so there were always contemporaries who were against slavery, you know, who, who were um, abolitionists. And so, you know, and, and we know that there's no such thing as, as a good enslaver, you know, so, um, (laughs) So that's kind of uh, that part, that part, yeah. you know, exactly. uh, look, don't, don't, don't get me preaching on Abraham Lincoln. We'll be here all day, but, right. Right. <laughs> but I also want to go back to, so I wouldn't be me and you wouldn't be you if we didn't talk about reparations, right? Okay. And so I made that very heartbreaking confession and a part of me, you know, changing my tune about it was learning the the like the amazing information that you've shared that other people have shared so here we are 2022 we have not seen the manifestation of a i call it capital r reparations package that directly responds to the enslavement of africans we have not seen a department of african american affairs that i would arguably say that would be the department that would facilitate and move, you know, that kind of process. So what what are your thoughts? Here we are in 2022. I mean, is, you know, I'm trying to think of the best way to ask this question, but is that a fair demand to still be made even now? Sure. You know, um, I think that, um, you know, my job as an historian is, is to do all of that digging around in archives and you know, researching and presenting the the facts. And then I think then it's your job as the end user, the reader, the viewer, the visitor to the museum or historic site to then take that information and say, now, what are we going to do about reparations? What are we going to do about um, inclusivity? What are we going to do about equity? What are we going to do about affirmative action? Or what are we going to do, you know, to make things right? What are we going to do to reconcile? What about atonement? What does decolonization look like? So I say all that to say I do, I hope someday that uh, we get some form of reparations, but I really think that collectively, um, as a community, Black folks need to come together to, to that conclusion and, and then resolve to, you know, develop a plan of action and, and then move forward. But, but I think that that is for us to do collectively as a community to figure out next steps. And, you know, there have been individuals who have, have made tremendous effort, you know, in that way so far with testifying before Congress and protesting and, and uh, their activism, which is important, 
you know, and I think we just have to continue that, you know, um, and, but also have um, uh, a, a plan for, for action and then doing it, you know, those are my thoughts. So if someone were to say, I just, I gotta do it because there might be a black person like me who listens, who is like, Kina, yeah, slavery, what are you making a big deal of it? So if someone were to say, why did this conversation still matters? What would you tell them? Well, it still matters because I think uh, we're still suffering from the legacies of slavery um, in, in this country. I think as a country we are, I think as a community Black folks are, I think um, that we're still um, reeling from that. So we're not healed. We're not. Um, we can't even really talk about it, you know, you know, some folks don't even want to talk about it. And, you know, I mean, you have all this, you know, folks who are moving for not even teaching it properly. So we have a long way to go. And so, but it's definitely relevant and still important. And, um, you know, because we're, we're um, actually still living with it, if you will. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not gonna, uh, well, gosh, what's the word? Well, that's not even important. I'm not going to have you draw legislation up because you are not a legislator. But I have definitely, you know, I, I call it my running list of reasons why reparations should be a thing. Uh, but I think for me, what I want for Black people to know is even in the muck of it, right, even in the sorrow and the darkness, you know, going back to the rotunda, I was most proud you know what I'm saying? Because it's gorgeous, Dr. Bell. Mm-hmm. And it and it just, it made me think, if my ancestors could create something this beautiful under the most violent of circumstances, I can take pride in that. And so that's what I want for Black folks. Because like, to your point, there are Black people who are like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to learn anything. I just want to move forward. And in that... And I get it, right? We, 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 as humans, we want to not deal with the trauma. We don't want to hear about the ugly, the scary. You know, we want to avoid the monsters under the bed. But in this particular instance, for me, in my own journey to decolonize, it has been going back, you know, um, sometimes literally, you know, I go to, I try to, Louisiana is a, is, is a place where there's a, like, there are several different plantations throughout uh, Louisiana. And so I, (laughs) some people would say that's pretty creepy, Kina, that in your spare time, you know, (laughs) you go to these sites, but it has become such a part of my, my healing to, to see the ugliness and to see the triumph and they can coexist. And that's what I would tell people that, yeah, it is dark. Yeah, it is scary, but this is why I can walk around. And, you know, I, <laughs> I feel like if someone introduced me to President Biden within 10 minutes, I'd be like, so we, are we going to talk about reparations or not? Like, I, I would be confident in having that conversation because I know what's owed to us, you know? And so that's what I would encourage folks to do is move through it, take your time, but know that there's beauty here too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're, you're not creepy for, for liking uh, visiting plantations. They are, uh, they are my uh, happy place, if you will. They are um, places where I, <laughs> I was going to say, now that was creepy. <laughs> I know, right? 
It's why you're at me, Blaze. If you had been a white person and you just said that, I would have been like, you know what, I I gotta stop. I know. Maybe we'll have to go back and cut that one out, Kena. No. (laughs) (laughs) Edit, edit. But I'll just say that um, you're you're not creepy for for um, wanting to visit uh, plantations. I think that um, you know I I enjoy visiting and learning when I when I go to plantations. I've been to several historic sites that are that are plantations, and um, and uh, they are they they are all unique in their own way and have have um very interesting stories to tell and and i think it's important really for for everyone you know whatever your background is to go and visit to get a a bigger picture of of um, the early uh time period of our of our country uh to learn that part of of it um which which you know which was a tremendous a part to uh you know, our economic development in early America, uh, you know, the the labor that took place on these plantations was critical. And not only the labor that took place on them, but creating them and building them. You know how difficult it is to clear forest and, and clear land and build a, a home and make a plantation. <laughs> I mean, it's and, and the outbuildings and all of that. It's I mean, you know. So just think about all of that. It's important to visit them, but yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the history of enslavement is not, you know, and you, you hear a lot of people say slavery isn't black people's history, it's white people's history. Uh, I'm not going to like argue either side of that, but what I am going to name is that the story of enslavement is United States history, right? Absolutely. It is foundational. But more than that, because I I, I, I want to kind of like amplify this as more than just historical talk, right? I've heard and, you know, I've read folks who have named that the enslavement of African folks is the first global industry. Mm-hmm. And from that becomes even the foundation for how the industrial world moves. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so- it's not just history, but it's also economics. It's also politics. It's also, oh, you know what I'm saying? So it's something that- It's a global enterprise. It's a sure. global yeah. enterprise. And one of the things that I often say is, you know, our ancestors were the, they created the startup capital. You know, that's what it was. They created the startup capital. And there's so many moving parts, even to the extent that, there's not just the enslavement of people, but it's all the other things that have to be built along the way. It's the insurance and it's the banking and it's the factories. So there's so many things that get literally built because of the vile mistreatment and dehumanization of folks with African descent, you know? Oh, for sure. And and you've touched on so many things that, that we can go down into the rabbit holes, but... <laughs> Of, of how it all worked together and the banking and the insurance and the farmers who supplied the food and the, you know, the, um, the, the lumber that was used to make the ships and, you know, we could go on and on. Right. Um, so, Wait, everybody... so what you're saying, Dr. Bell is the <laughs> North word the here, <laughs> you know, I'm being messy now. Yeah. You know, I'm being messy because yeah. the North is like, 
we don't know anything about that. We well, you know, I think they're I think they're come to terms, you know, and and I and they've recognized in in several ways, you know, um, their role. I mean, you can look at um, the Brown family, and Brown University has done a wonderful, um, uh, you know, piece uh, publication research on the role of their founders in the in the transatlantic slave trade and and in the the founding of the university and then there are so many other universities who have recognized you know their use of uh enslaved labor and and owning enslaved people and uh you know all of that yeah but you know you're right there it was an an enterprise and and there were so many hands and involved in 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 the pot so um there's there's plenty to go around when we think about who um who contributed to this um exploitation of humanity i gotta say you know so y'all can take this episode and take it right to your state legislator and say run me a chick (laughs) just like push play push play on the episode dr bell said you know how we do it (laughs) remember i said my job is to do the research and then I hand over the facts and let the people decide you, you, how they Now, you it. already know how, because listen, this might be the episode my mama listens. And I tell you what, if my mom gets this episode, she's going to go to work and she's going to say, uh, Dr. Felicia Bell said, y'all. <laughs> but seriously, Kita, seriously, <laughs> I hope that we can, you know, as a community organize and really, really, you know, seek out those who are the activists, those who, let's support those who are on the front lines fighting for reparations and what can we do? How can we support them? So, you know what I mean? And and that may even be something you want to pursue in your podcast and use that, you know, as, Girl, as look, a means. I'm, I'm out yeah. here every day. I'm I know you are. Day. Absolutely. Yeah. I also want so, to yeah, say. They need, they need the, you know, the platform, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I also want to say there's a part of this conversation and this will happen throughout this season. I'm having so many amazing conversations with people. Good. There's a part of this where we have to, again, deal with our own internalized supremacy culture, our own internalized anti-Blackness. And that's been the journey that I've been on because as, and you look, we, we don't, we won't be here all day, sis, but you know, as well as I, that in a lot of spaces, rather we're talking about the Academy industry, it is so, you know, I say this all the time, white supremacy, racism, these violent systems, they don't exist just because people who are deemed white exist, you know, and if we woke up tomorrow and all the white people disappeared, right, these systems would still be in place, they would still be maintained. And so there's a certain part of, there's a, there's a need for honest reflection to say, how am I, right, as a Black person, someone consciously or unconsciously moving, endorsing, supporting anti-Blackness in my everyday life, you mm-hmm. know? And that's something that matters a lot to me and it's something that I'm constantly doing is saying, oh, this isn't me, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a part of that where once we start to say for ourselves as a community, we've subscribed to some of these thoughts too, then Mm -hmm. I think that opens the door for us to also say, we deserve so much more 
-hmm. you know? Yeah, you know, and, and um, I think, again, that's a part of that legacy of, of slavery, right? I just think there's like, it's, it's these little, these remnants here and there, you know, um, everything from mental health and physical health to, you know, how uh, our, our everyday lives, you know, all of that policy, all of that, you know, comes into play as, as a part of the legacy um, of, I'll, I'll, of slavery. Yeah, I was actually going to say something I think you could appreciate. Okay. So y'all can't see Dr. Bell's setup, but Dr. Bell has these amazing artifacts. Like I, <laughs> like I can see on the Zoom call, y'all can't see it, but just, you know, imagine with me. And it makes me think I was, I was working on this article years ago, Dr. Bell, I mean, 10 plus years ago. And part of the research was I was looking at black owned newspapers from the 1930s and 40s, right? And that's the thing, y'all, it's a real thing, all right? The Chicago beat, no, that's not it. The Chicago, Chicago beat was real, yeah, but it was not, that yeah, was, not it was uh, Yeah, Chicago yeah. Defender. Yeah, so, I mean, Black journalists were telling our stories, but I'm looking through a Black-owned newspaper and I see an advertisement, and I kid you not, it's an advertisement that says, it's an advertisement for, um, hair relaxer and it the the it and basically the 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 catchy phrase is relax so they can relax mm. and I was like well 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 wow now key word here is this was a black owned newspaper mm-hmm. so this is where this comes out you get what I'm saying I right and I just it floored me it floored me and you know for years <laughs> It was one of those things that, you know, when you're like in the microfilms and you're just like, oh, like you spent it hours, just hours rolling it, you know? And I, and I, and I could have sworn and y'all didn't, the, the listeners don't need to know this, but I mourn it because I think I was so shocked by seeing it that I didn't save it, you know? Mm, uh-huh, and uh-huh. so I, I haven't been able to find that ad and I don't know, maybe it is saved under something that I just don't remember what I saved it on my hard job as. But that history is still there and we're still yep. moving through it. Yep. And so I'm so grateful that we have amazing historians like you who could oh. lead us, to guide us, to give us the receipts, quote unquote. You know, yep. you can't put this on a TikTok, but <laughs> right, right. Right. It's in the books, it's in the archives, it's in the microfilm, it's in the state archives, it's here and it's available right. for us. So I'm thankful for you for leading the way. Well, thank you. And, and what an honor and pleasure it was to be with you and uh, to share. And I, I just appreciate the opportunity. Uh, and, and like I said in the beginning, it's always a uh, pleasure to be in the company of Black women. So, yeah, so, so this, that does not, um, it's not lost on me. So, so if we roll up, to the Smithsonian can we be like y'all where's Dr. <laughs> y'all be like, I'm looking for Dr. Bell y'all where's Dr. Bell she works here oh that's so sweet at the National <laughs> Museum of American History American History here no, across not, the street. not at the Barack Obama one because you know again that's how blo- that's how black folks would be like you know Barack the Barack Museum. oh goodness wow you work at the other one. across the street yes but we we love our neighbors there at the National Museum of African American History and Culture they're doing a fantastic job and and um 
you know, God bless them. They, you know, they have a tremendous story that they're responsible for. And so, um, you know, we, we salute them and support them. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, and telling, uh, America's story, you know, it, it ain't easy, you know, so we, who, who, so who are you telling? You already know I had to run out the museum, but that's another story. <laughs> yes, yes. So look, I can't wait till COVID comes down and then I'll head back your way. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. And you're going to be like, Lord, Kina said she was going to do this. I didn't think she was. Oh, you're but welcome. I'm going to be like, where's Dr. Bell? Where's Dr. <laughs> well, that's where you're welcome anytime, anytime. All right. Look, Black History in the Making. I'm so thankful that we had Dr. Felicia Bell. Y'all check out the research. I mean, yeah, you can visit the museum. You, I mean, just we are deeply honored. Uh, and if people want to connect more with Dr. Bell, Dr. Bell has a LinkedIn. Um, I think, is that something, is there anything else, like if people are trying to connect to you that you would direct them to? Yeah, LinkedIn, um, you know, for sure. And um, on Twitter, I'm at Dr. Felicia Bell, uh, F-E-L-I-C-I-A. Sis, are you tweeting? I didn't know you was out of here in the Twitter screen. I'm not active, (laughs) but you can certainly. (laughs) I'm not judging you because... I'm the old lady who's like, I understand Facebook and Instagram. Anything else? I'm like a kid, like, huh? How do you turn this off? I'm I'm on several things, but, you know, I mean, if you reach out, you know, definitely, um, you know, LinkedIn is cool, Um, you know, and I try my best to get to the others, you know? It's okay. You too busy. You too busy looking up the archives. We we forgive you. And, 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 you know, and follow the, um, follow the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. We have several social media platforms, Instagram, uh, you know, Facebook. So, so definitely follow us and keep up with our programming. We do some very dynamic programming year round that, that address these kinds of issues. Um, and we're really working to, you know, acknowledge this complex history and then, and then, and then trying to get our visitors, like I said earlier, to think critically about these things and, and let's start telling the whole story and, and being righteous. And so, um, so please, you know, follow us and, and support us. And, and of course, come visit when you can uh, the museum. All right, y'all. That's Dr. Felicia Bell. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Please Say Black podcast. And I am so excited to be your host, Joaquina Reed. I hope today's episode really connected to you in a deep way. And I want to encourage you to check out the episode notes. You can find out more information about me, how you can support our podcast, and of course, find out more information about our dope guests. Lastly, make sure you follow us over at Instagram at Please Say Black. I want to leave you with this blessing from our tremendous ancestor, Malcolm X, that says, I pray that God bless you in everything you do. I pray that you will grow intellectually so that you can understand the problems of the world and where you fit into it, into that world picture. And I pray that all the fear that has ever been in your heart will be taken out. So stay black, stay black, and be blessed. If you don't mind, I would like to get a little rest now. Catch y'all next time.